Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Okay. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. We're back to our Sutra Study Sunday. Um, special night tonight. Uh, the Bhadikarata Sutta. A single excellent night. Um, so we are back in our sutta, so back in our Pali uh, texts. If it's your first time here, if you haven't been here for a while, uh, we've been going through different Buddhist sutras and sometimes suttas, uh, sometimes from the Pali, sometimes from the Sanskrit, sometimes from the Chinese, uh, and just going through different sutras and exploring them. And we just finished a multi-week, I forget how many weeks we spent on it, uh, maybe six, seven weeks on a sutra called uh, How to Kill with the Sword of Wisdom, uh, which is a, a, a wild, wild sutra. It really got a really out of hand, uh, <laughs> I, I think. I think that sutra is really wild. And so I wanted to dial it back a little bit for tonight, put away the sword and all of that. Um, and go back to the suttas. And this is a beautiful uh, sutta. If you've never read it, um, you're, you will see. Um, it's, not, I, it's not used a lot. I, I came across it in my studies and sort of was like, wow, where did this little gem come from? And have been using it for a while. Um, upon reviewing of it, um, it's a wonderful follow-up to the last sutra. Um, if you remember, if you were doing the Sword of Wisdom Sutra with me, with us, um, in the middle of it, I brought in a sutra that was the Fire Sermon, the Fire Sutra, which was also a Pali Sutta. Uh, and it was kind of showing how a lot of the ideas in our Sword of Wisdom Sutra were very present in early Buddhist suttas, in the Pali Suttas. Surprisingly, this wonderful little sutta is going to be very reminiscent of our Sword of Wisdom. So uh, if you were taking uh, those classes uh, last month, then you'll see some uh, similarities. Um, here we go. This one, uh, Sutra 131, uh, one, yeah, 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 I got lots, um, is coming out of this collection called the uh, Majima Nikaya, right? This is the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. So this is a collection of sutras, a collection of suttas. Uh, let's see. 152 of them. There are multiple collections of the uh, Pali suttas. Uh, this one's the middle-length discourses. The, uh, there's the Diga Nikaya, which are the long discourses. Um, and uh, the... Uh, Samyutta Nikaya, a lot of the sutras we've been doing are out of the Samyutta Nikaya. Really quickly, just to let you know. So these collections are called the Nikayas. Nikaya. Um, plural, Nikayas, which is another name for the Pali suttas. So Pali is this language of southern India. And at some point, these Buddhist suttas in Pali were gathered together into these different collections, again called Nikayas. Um, 
if this is India, uh, the Buddha was from somewhere around here, land called Magadha. Um, but eventually the Buddhist teachings migrated south and then it actually even went to the little island Sri Lanka uh, and then actually even over to <coughs> Thailand. And it was in Thailand that a lot Thailand and Sri Lanka that a lot of these old original Pali suttas were uh, kind of first encountered by British and French um, anthropologists, uh, archaeologists, and so from Sri Lanka and parts of Thailand, the suttas that were in this language Pali were sort of translated into English, and they are in these collections of Nikayas. What I want you to know, though, is that these same body of teachings, these Nikayas, also migrated north up into what is today Afghanistan, through the Khyber Pass of Afghanistan, through the Gobi Desert, and then eventually into China. And they were translated into Chinese, and they're called Agamas. Agamas. What's fascinating about this from a historical perspective is that these suttas that went south went to Sri Lanka, went to Thailand, and eventually translated from Pali into English. And then these agamas, which then went north here, translated into Chinese, and then from Chinese you can find English versions of it, they're remarkably similar. And I can't express to you how important that is as a historian, as a scholar, if you're interested in if you're interested in the integrity of these texts, if you're interested in like, you know, was this really what was going on? It's amazing that in, I mean, the Agamas were being translated in Chinese in the third century AD, right? So 400 years after the Buddha or so, and then being translated into Pali and other languages down here. And again, when you translate <laughs> the Pali ones into English and you translate these Chinese ones into English, you can start doing line-by-line -line comparisons and start noting slight little places where they change things. So again, in terms of the integrity of these texts, it's profound um, to have so many different versions of them. All right? So that's just a quick uh, little snapshot of where this, sorry, where this suture comes from. From the collection of the Pali Suttas, this Nikaya. All right. Um, Let's do it. Do it. Thus have I heard. Starts like any other sutra. Of course, every sutra begins, thus have I heard. And these are the words of the Buddha's cousin, Ananda. Ananda was present for every teaching of the Buddha, every sutra or sutta. And at a council after the Buddha's death, Ananda recalled all of the teachings of the Buddha. Oh, thus have I heard one time the Buddha was in Shravasti, and thus have I heard one time he was in Rajgriha, and thus have I heard one time he was here, and one time he was there. So every sutra is the recollection, supposedly, of Ananda, saying, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living in Shravasti, or Savati, as it's said in Pali. In Sanskrit, it would be Shravasti, in Jetta's Grove, Anathapindika's Park. Anathapindika was this really wealthy, I think he was kind of a lawyer, something like that. 
support the Buddha. He had this beautiful mango grove. He do donated it to the Buddha and his Sangha, and that's called Anakapindika's Park. Uh, and there he addressed the bhikkhus, all the monks, all the monastics, and said, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. And the blessed one said this, bhikkhus, I shall teach you the summary and exposition of one who has had a single excellent night. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, venerable sir, the bhikkhus replied. And the Blessed One said this. So you should know this is a poem, and he's about to recite this poem. And we'll basically focus on this poem for a little while. So this is the heart of the sutra. Let not a person revive the past, or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know, let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, Mara, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep Mara and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. Right. So that's the poem. Um, a few things to, to share with you as we go through it. Okay, so line by line. Let not a person revive the past. Um, there's a footnote here, footnote 1211. He gives a slightly alternative translation of reviving the past. Um, the literal meaning of it is actually running to the past. So let not a person run to the past or on the future build his hopes. Why? For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, and this word insight is a very important word. This is vipassana, translated as insight as in insight meditation. This is the a fundamental type of Buddhist meditation. And it is matched with shamatha. Usually translated as calming. And these two activities calming and insight, shamatha and vipassana, this is what makes Buddhism Buddhism. This uh, relationship between meditative calming and meditative insight. Um, and I was saying to someone earlier that sort of prior to the Buddha, 
in India, meditation, this thing we call yoga, what have you, it was all shamatha, calming down, calming down, calming down, calming way down till the point of actual cessation of thought and the mind reaching a still point of equanimity, equilibrium, peace, stillness. That was the goal of meditation in India. That is the goal of many types of meditation. But just calming down to this state of stillness is not Buddhism because the Buddha introduced this idea of pashina, insight, sort of turning the mind, the, the calm mind, the peaceful mind, turning that mind sort of back on in a way to a reflective mode, a contemplative mode, an analytical mode, analysis. This is actually sometimes even translated as analysis. So this is what makes Buddhism Buddhism, not just calming meditation, but what would be called mindfulness, sati, concentration, that type of awareness. All right? And this is saying, let not a person run to the past or on the future build his hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with vipassana, with using vipassana, insight, let him see each presently arisen state. That's what we're after. So this is a pretty straightforward recommendation. Don't allow the mind to dwell in the past. It's gone. Whoop. Don't allow the mind to dwell in the future. It ain't here yet. You don't know what it will be like in the future. So rather, with insight, focus on each presently arisen state. We, we will talk at length about presently arisen states. Right? But just be it known that a presently arisen state is this present, presently arisen state that is not past, past mind, or future mind. It is what's happening. So it's about, a, a, with insight, a concentrated awareness on what's happening. Right? But again, we'll go in deeper into arisen states. But let him know let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly and unshakably. So the idea here is, is, and the Buddha will be kind to us and expound upon this in, at length, but the idea is, is that being in this really present frame of mind, that this is extolling, being really, really present, so present that you have no past mind, no future mind, that is to be an invincible invincible and unshakable, right? Meaning if you're, if you're wrapped up in the past or you're wrapped up in the future, you are, you're, you're invincible, right? You are <laughs> invincible and you're shakable is the idea, right? Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? But if you were here for my Sword of Wisdom classes, you know this word, capital D, death, in Buddhism is personified as a being called Mara. Also sometimes called Papian, which means the evil one. But Mara is the word, Sanskrit word, for death. 
But in Buddhism, they personify death. They personify this, this what, I don't even know, this fear, this event, this, I don't, you know, what is death? Did I just say that? Right. I don't, so, but they call it a being, Mara, right? So it's helpful to know that tomorrow Mara may, can, may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep Mara and his hordes away. Now, his, the hordes are, were also mentioned in our Sword of Wisdom Sutra, right? We were talking about Mara and the demons and the hordes of demons, right? And that sutra was about how to destroy Mara, how to destroy Mara and his hordes, right? Tomorrow, Mara may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep Mara and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. One, before I finish, one other interesting thing about it is he, the peaceful sage has said. The peaceful sage, fascinating. Um, I am not a Pali expert. My Sanskrit is mediocre. So if anybody would like to do some homework, the Pali for the peaceful sage is Santo Muni. Santo Muni. Now, you may be familiar with the term or the name Shakyamuni. Anybody? Shakyamuni? Shakyamuni. So, salut. Shakya, the Shakya is a tribe, kind of, um, that the Buddha's family was part of. His, I believe his, kind of his family name, so this is sort of part of his family name, Gautama, but his larger clan was called the Shakya people, and a Muni is a sage. So he's called the sage of the Shakya people, or the sage of the Shakya clan, Shakya Muni. This text refers to him as the Santo Muni, the peaceful sage. Santo being, I guess, part of this word, uh, Shanti. But you see, there's a, this looks a lot like Saint to me. Um, so I would be curious if anyone want to do the etymological homework on the translation, the transition from Santo to possibly Saint. Santo Muni. So the, the peaceful sage, the Buddha, says that that person who dwells ardently thus present can be said to have had a single excellent night. Questions, ideas just on the poem before we, anything, ideas before we I use some language that I'm not that I'm misinterpreting but I would say presently arisen moment. Presently arisen states. states. Yes. Why is arisen harder than the not I don't know what that. So let's. But it, yeah, yeah. but it doesn't say presently arising. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, interesting. Sure, sure. 
I would probably not get hung up on the tenths. I would, yeah, I would not get hung up on the tenths. What I would get hung up on is, I don't know, well, a risen state, a presently risen state. So what this is referring to an arisen state is to just a few ideas and this is going to be the one. So this idea of dependent origination, right? All things being dependently originated, right? It's at the, the foundation of Buddhist thinking, kind of Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist phenomenology, Buddhist epistemology, like how we know things, how things are. It's all based on this idea. We, the, uh, like the unenlightened, do not see the world in terms of dependent origination. This is the bodhisattva view of the world. It is the bodhisattva practice to try to develop this way of seeing the world, always. But most of the time, we are in some Newtonian nightmare of cause and effect and, and all kinds of stuff. So there's Pratitya Samutpata, dependent origination, and there's the Newtonian nightmare. <laughs> I don't think you have anything to do with Krishna. So this is the way we see the world. We see the world as a world of objects and things and the colliding of particles and atoms and primarily um, causes producing effects. All right? So cause... Effect. So I did that, right? Cause, effect. The cause is first. And the effect is second. This causes that to happen. Had it not been for this, this would not be. That is our way of seeing the world. The Newtonian nightmare that we live in of cause and effect is the world of Subject and objects. Subject, the self, and objects, stuff. Self and other, right? <laughs> Over here, 
in this world, cause and effect are equal. One does not precede the other. The cause is contained in, in the effect. The effect is contained in the cause. They're happening simultaneously. All right? And this is where it's like one's head sort of starts to spin a little bit because of the, the vast difference between these two things. This way that we see the world is the world of time, meaning this happened and then this happened. Uh, the world of space. It was here and now it's over there. <laughs> right? So before it was over here, later on it was over there. Right? So subject doing things to objects, self and other, self and other people, self and other things, all of that. All right, so that's, and then there's this crazy idea of dependent origination. Do I need to really explain this? Yes. <laughs> Try it. Again. Once again. Once again. So, well, I mean, there's so many examples. <coughs> oh. Unless everybody else in the room gets it. Oh, well, yeah. oh, okay. No, I mean. So here's the thing. Oh, I mean, I'm really into the augmented reality version of it. And I know we've been through this, but <laughs> wait, what, what did you say? Try something. Try something? OK. So um, yeah. honestly, I've, I've reviewed your notes for the class, and I've really, really tried to sink into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, let's well, let's let's get into the middle then. Let's like, well, my goodness. So, ah, oh, it's, it's just. Are you, You know, I mean, there's so many examples that are both old and new. Um, okay, well, let's do one. We'll do an example like this. I've used all of these examples before. I'm running out of examples. But this, mm, let's start with this idea of, of, um, like me as a teacher, that idea, right? So what we're getting at is, is like, this is probably not a great example, but it might be turned into a good example. <laughs> so I've spoken about this before that if all of you were not here and I was up here doing this, right? Like talking and drawing and things, right? I wouldn't really be a teacher, <laughs> right? We would probably have other names or words for what, what, what that is, right? 
So there's this way in which that I could be up here doing this, but it's not until there's a student that I become a teacher. And all of a sudden, this is relevant because, ah, so I wasn't a teacher before. And if you all got up and left, I would cease being a teacher. But as long as there is this in-between, then I'm a teacher and you're a student. Likewise, if I got up and left, you all would sort of stop being students all of a sudden. Bam. Just like that. It gets a little like wavy, right? All of a sudden it's like, so I'm a teacher right now and students right now. Do I have to be saying something for that to happen? Like, oh, like, so these ideas of I am a this and you are a that, not only are they dependently originating, meaning it's not just in me, I, I, can't, I can't be a teacher, just me. I need the students to talk to, I need that. And you can't be a student just solo. You need the, the book or the teacher or the, the online course or whatever it is. You need the, the information to be coming at you in order to be a student. So there's a way in which me as this is being dependently originated, but that even in that dependent origination of me as a teacher and you as a student, it gets really, again, kind of wavy because are we not teacher and student right then when I'm silent and it's only when there's words happening? What ex exactly when does that begin and end? What begins to happen with dependent origination is, is you start to see the role that both subject and object are playing in the dynamic kind of creation of all of this. Okay? So hold on to that idea of sort of me as that. Because this, this idea of dependent origination goes from the kind of things like that that are kind of easy to wrap your head around a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, I could see how me as a teacher and you as, and you as a student, oh, I can see how they're related, right? I can see how they're kind of bound up together in kind of a ball of meaning, if you will. And so if you get rid of one, one ceases to be, I, you know, this is the classic, what is this? What is that? If you haven't seen this one before, it's another interesting example of dependent origination. Does anybody know what that is? The what? It's the, a line. It's a, or an L and an R. It's a mark. Right. Oh my God. It's infinity. It's anything. It's the Buddha. Right? <laughs> it actually is. But the thing is, is that within the, within our Newtonian nightmare of like, what are these things, right? If I were to do something like this, right? And I, now I asked you again, wait, what is that? Right. And somebody already said it, right? Oh, it's the letter I, right? So the idea is, so we're going to go a little deeper now. We're going past just ideas of identity and I'm a teacher, you're a student. So what is that? What is that? And right now you're like, oh, it's the letter I. But here's the magic trick. Here's the magic trick. Hold on. Hold on to that letter I. Oh, is it still the letter I? Well, 
<laughs> now it's a one. But wait a minute, there was a letter I a second ago. Now it's a one. And I didn't do anything to it. I didn't put little, you know, lines here. You know, I didn't affect or I didn't change the line. I changed what was next to the line. And all of a sudden, what was next to the line changed your understanding of what that was. Right? You thought it was the letter I. Bam! All of a sudden, it's the number one. And then it back. It's back to being the letter I. So there's a way in which the mind, in terms of trying to figure out what this is, is actually looking to this. Your mind, in trying to figure out what this is, is going to look to what's next to me. Oh, it's a whiteboard. He must be a teacher. Oh, it's a bunch of students in a whiteboard. He must be a teacher. I'm a letter I, right? And all of a sudden, as soon as the students are gone and the whiteboard's gone, oh, I'm a number one, right? So who, what I am is actually dependent upon not this, not this, not what's up in here, not what's in here. It's not this. It's actually what is here. That is a... Another little deeper example of dependent origination, where it isn't just here. The, the meaning of this is not in that. Because again, when, you know, when I put that up there, it's like, what is that? Oh my God, like, <laughs> it's everything. It's actually everything. Right? Because I just showed you how it's, it's at least the letter I am the number one. Right? So, man, I mean, that has a lot going for it. Being a number and being a letter, right? But if you go, if you realize, oh, oh, it's my mind projecting onto that meaning of being a letter, meaning of being a number. But that's all just my mind throwing things onto there. I could, my mind could throw all kinds of things onto there and dependently originated into all kinds of forms, right? Everybody follow me on this. Here's the, the thing just to, again, show this relationship. The old I and the S, which, by the way, right, <coughs> just a little fun, deeper, like, everybody see what that is, right? Right? That... This is, this, is all, this is all of your meaning, right? This is ontology. This is being, existence. And it's all based on a straight line and a curved line. Wow. Oh, wow. That diff, just a straight line and a curved line creates your whole existence. You mean the word is. Is. That's what your example is Exactly, yes. That, the, the concept of being, of isness, right? is a straight line and a curved line. But what's wild about it is that again, this is not necessarily the letter I. It's being created by the, what's next to it. Is it context? Is that the right word to describe Yeah, it? of course, but a better, I mean, Buddhism has this really great word uh, called samya. It's one of the skandhas. Yeah. So, samya 
This is usually translated as perception in terms of form, sensations, perception, volition, and consciousness, the five skandhas. Samya is the Buddhist word for that in order to make meaning of this, I have to take into consideration the whole situation. That I don't actually ever see any one thing alone. Like if I said, what is this? Your mind quickly goes, oh, it's a marker. But you didn't deduce that actually just from this. Well, there's a block going on here. but So this is actually Samya, context, sure, kind of. Going back to the point, so you could say that it is the S causing this to be the letter I, right? But again, this squiggle, a squiggle, it's a squiggle. Is it the letter S? Well, it's the letter S when it's next to the letter I. Oh, so you mean they're doing it to each other. The I, the quote I, is making that be an S in my mind. But the fact that this be an S in my mind is what's causing that to be an I in my mind. You see how it's going around and around? This is what I mean by cause and effect are equal. It's not that this is causing that to be what it is, and it's not that that's causing that to be what it is. They're causing each other in this circle of meaning. Everybody following me on that? They're doing it to like that. Same thing's going on here. Teacher, student, me and you, self and other, is a big dependent origination dance. This is the dependent origination dance. Okay, questions about that? We're going to go deeper, but this is just the surface level. You started a little bit to talk about time and space on mm -hmm. that side. It's time being linear and Well, that's, you want to get right in the fast lane, so. <laughs> we have one more step before we can get a fast lane. All right. Any questions about this? Are we kind of getting this? Yeah. This kind of back and forth, right? Okay. So, okay. The next step on this, and I've, I've, I've said this one a lot, and it's just, it's really tricky. So, Hold on. In the Newtonian nightmare, first there is me, the subject, right? I'm Michael. I have a name. I have a concept of my history, my life, time, space, where I am, when I am, all of that, right? And in my Newtonian view of the world, where I am, I think Oh, I, uh, I would like the book, right? I want the book. I think to myself, I would like to read the book. And there I pick up the book, right? So cause, the cause is I would like to, to read the book. The cause is the reaching for it. The cause is now, or the effect is now I have it. Before and after. There was me and me wanting the book, and now me having the book. Everybody following that? Just simple, <laughs> simple, right? So that's where there's subject and objects, subject and objects, and there's before and after, and there's cause and effect. 
following all that, right? This is where it gets wild. This is where it gets really wild. In the dependent origination version of this, it is through the act, the clinging act, the desireful act, I come into being from that. And it happens simultaneously. No, it's happening all the time based on all my desires. But I think I come first and then I do things. What, what I am kind of getting at or what Buddhism is getting at is that it is actually the clinging, and pardon the pantomime here, but the clinging to an object that is creating, dependently originating my sense of self, my being. That it's actually coming from what I perceive to be effects, what I perceive to be my free will doing all of these things. It's, that's what's creating the self. And then the reflective mind thinks, I wanted to do that and I got it. The enlightened mind recognizes, oh, this is how selves come into being through clinging okay. and desire. I just want to, in the last class, <laughs> yep. uh, you said, <laughs> we don't become a self until we want the bell. You were using the bell. Yes. So when the mind is clear and not in the world of desire, there is no self until wanting desire. My work is done here. <laughs> there is, yes, yes. Okay. So that's no self? Yeah, that's so. In the Newtonian nightmare, yeah. there are selves and stuff. Yeah. In this, there is no self because the very notion of there being a self is dependent upon those things which I don't think have selves. I don't think this is a sentient being, right? I don't think this is a sentient being. Therefore, I don't think it is a a self in that, in the more normal use of the word self. Yeah, but you could desire a, a, a human <laughs> or No, no, but what I'm getting at is, is that my, in this view, yeah. my, the notion, the very notion of myself as a sentient being is arising from my belief in there being things that aren't sentient beings. Right? So the very notion of me being a human, sentient being is dependent upon and being dependently originated from the notion of there being inanimate, unsentient things in this world. But in reality, the inanimate, not sentient thing and the note this are getting together. So is there a self here? Is there a self here? No. There are selves arising in the in-between of all this. I would really help to use the augmented reality example. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it. I, I, might, I, might, I might. I might. I might. I might. I'm going to get back to this suture because Dharma is always better. But question. Answer. Um, Answer. Question. Okay. You're not... You're not taking the cause and effect and reversing it. Like, we have to be careful, right? It's not 
the picking up of the book that creates itself. It's thank you in the picking up of the book that the self is they happen together. They happen together. You think there's this whole past of your life, right. right? We're getting to the time thing. We believe in this whole past of our life and that this is all going somewhere. But those are all going to be dependently originated ideas. All right? So, okay. Time. Here's the thing about it. Here's the thing about it. Before we do time, before we do time, I do the clock. All right. This is a, this is fun, and you everybody's seen this story before. But so we're going to talk about the. Uh, we're going to kind of try to move from this worldview to this worldview by examining this clock. So here's the big thing that the mind does that the Buddha sort of put. The Buddha put the mind, the human mind, under the microscope and was like, "Oh wow." Look what we're doing all the time. How funny. One of the things that we're doing all the time that's so funny is imagining singular objects. <laughs> is this one thing? Is this one thing? How, is it one thing? Yeah, right. It seems so simple before, right? When, when I threw it on the ground, it was like, oh, I threw the book on it. It's like one thing. But actually, it doesn't take much to very quickly start to see that what I thought was one thing is actually multiple. For example, like this clock. If, if you were to say, hey, Michael, hand me the clock, I would hand you the clock. The notion that this is one object, yes? But is it really one object, right? What part of this is essential? This is not clearly not essential, right, to its being. What would I have to take off in, for it to lose its, it, 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 right? And the example I gave, a funny example or story or whatever I gave is imagining that this little part broke. And so we contacted the Radio Shack in China, and they said, oh yeah, send it to us. And so we put this little guy in the mail, and they send us back a new one, and we go, great. And we put it right back on there, right? And then the little snooze button breaks, and so we send it back to the factory in China, and they send us back a new snooze button, and we put it right back. And then these little buttons break, and we send them back in the buttons. Of course, the batteries die, so we put new batteries in. And eventually, we've replaced every single part of the clock and then until we have an entirely different clock, right? And then the funny thing happens where the repairman from China comes in and he's like, hey, I got your clock because he kept every single part that we sent to him and he put it back together. And so the question is, who has the clock? He's got all the original parts, but I've got the one that we've been calling the meditation clock. Do you see what just what happened? It's gonzo. It's gone. Where's the clock? Right? Is there even a clock? 
<laughs> right? Ah, the mind is so powerful that it projects onto this singularity. It projects onto it. It's so easy. It just has one name. Hello, my name is Clock. <laughs> right? It's like just one name, one thing. But again, you put that under the microscope and you realize, oh, wow, this isn't one thing at all. And not only that, not only that, but my notion of this as one thing can be so easily challenged. When I show you, dude walks in, he's got the clock, but I've got the clock. And again, the question is, is what, what, was, what was essentially the clock? Because somebody has to have the real clock, right? They don't. They do in the Newtonian nightmare, but in this dependent origination world, we understand, oh, these names and labels are just that, mental projections onto what it believes is one thing. Oh, the one thing. And then now here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. It's only, only, only when there's one thing that I can cling to it. Right? I, I'm clean. Oh, I got the clock. I got the book. Got it all, right? But that clinging, but this clinging can only arise from the notion of individual entities. And I just showed you that there are no individual entities. So what are you clinging to? Notions of the mind. How funny. All right. The Buddha has more <laughs> worse. All right. And how, bhikkhus, does one run to the past or revive the past? One nurtures delight their thinking, I had such material form in the past. One nurtures delight their thinking, I had such feelings in the past. One nurtures delight there, thinking I had such perceptions in the past. One nurtures delight there, thinking I had such formations in the past. One delights there, thinking I had such consciousness in the past. That is how one runs to the past or revives the past. So very quickly, if you don't know what's being referenced here, is, what does it say? It uses, I uh, had such material form. Sensations, does it use? Feeling. So these are the five skandhas, right? The five aggregates. This is called arupa. This is called vedana. It's called arsamya. So this should be old hat. 
the five skandhas are what's being referenced here. This is classic Buddhism. Everybody else thought, uh, thought about entities, individual entities. Clocks, bells, tables, chairs, and self. This as an individual entity. I just showed you how ridiculous it was to call this one thing. The very first thing the Buddha said is that it is ridiculous to call this one thing. I know you have a name and that that lends itself to this belief in your singularity and your oneness. But the Buddha came along and said, ah, there's actually no individual, no self, no one oneness here. There is actually the momentary coalescence of these five aggregates or skandhas. Your physical matter, your bodily sensations, sensations of basically pleasure and pain. That's like, that's the two kind of spectrums of feeling. Perceptions, which I already explained is this sort of associative, the way your mind uh, deduces a situation, you have been trained, you have been taught to divide. So this whole little situation here, your mind has been taught how to divide that up in order to understand it. That way in which you do that is called samya. Samya, your quote perceptions. But the point of, in Buddhism, the point of that is that that's a conditioned way of seeing the world. You've been trained or conditioned to see it that way, and it's just that, a way of seeing the world. It is not actually the world out there. And you can change your samya, right? That's the other idea, is that this is a conditioned formation, the way that you divide the world up, right? Uh, this is a really interesting, this idea of samya, the idea that you don't just see this, you take in the whole situation, one group of people that know a lot about Samya are advertisers. Advertisers know they don't need to tell you about the Coca-Cola. They just need to have some scene going on over here and they go and they know that your mind will pick it up. That is what Samya means is that you see the whole thing and whether you're aware of what you're processing or not, it's coming in. That's samya, very powerful. But again, this is a conditioned formation, pardon the term formation, it's a conditioned way of seeing the world that can change. In fact, it does change. You learn new things and you learn to not see clocks, right? Like I was just hopefully trying to reconfigure your samya so that you would not instinctually see one thing. That's the idea here, that we can change our mind, Samskara, or formations, are similar to Samya. They're similar to this way of seeing the world, but it has to do with the accrual, the, 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 the buildup of memories. This is actually kind of like memory. It's kind of like conditioned thought patterns. It's actually similar to um, like um, responses to things. So that if you have had a negative association with different things, when you see that thing again, you'll kind of have a negative reaction to it. That's a samskara, right? But it's also positive. If you start 
you know, every time something happened and there was the, this, uh, you know, every great moment in your life happened to be in an in a, in a automobile, right? You, your first day, your best first day, you met your wife, all these things happened in these automobiles. You start to associate automobiles with good times. And I just want to go for a drive, feel free. Those are some scars, ways of feeling about things. And then vijnana, or consciousness, is the ever-turning wheel of ideas. So you are, this is the momentary coalescence of physical form, having sensations, perceiving the world a certain way, with certain conditioned thought patterns, and all of that is generating this ever-turning wheel of ideas. Oh wow, look at all these people. Oh wow, what's going on here? And the point is, is that all five of these are in a constant state of change. The, the physical form is changing all the time. Hair's falling out, cells are dying. Uh, it was hot before, cold now, whatever, tired. Uh, I was tired before, but now I feel really energetic. Uh, again, we can change the way we see the world. We can change our reactions to things. And of course, our consciousness is changing, right? Everybody following all those? I have a question. Please. If we can change, does that mean we have conditions to change? Mm, no, it's just sort of a fundamental law of. It is. It, it is. All things are changing. We can change. No, it's a fundamental law, according to Buddha Dharma, that all things are always changing. Nothing ever stays okay. statically the same, and that's sort of a good thing, according to the Buddha. So, here's our skandhas. And what the Buddha is saying here is, is that, okay, so you told me, Buddha, that I should not run to the past. So how bhikkhus does one not run to the past? Or how does one revive the past or run to the path? past? One nurtures delight. They're thinking, back then, I had such material form in the past. Oh, I was so young. Oh, my God, I looked so good back in my 20s or whatever. That is running to the past and, and kind of, uh, what is it, what's the verb? Nurturing delight, thinking that I had such material form back then. One nurtures delight thinking, oh, I had such feelings back then, right? Oh, I was on the beach in Maui and it was so sunny and the cool breeze. Oh, it's so nice and oh, now it's cold and rainy. Oh, I wish I, so that is running to the past. Back when I had such and such material form, back when I was having such and such feelings, or when my perceptions were such and such, right? Oh, I'm so jaded now, and the way that I divide the world up, I just instantly start looking at the worst of things. But back when I was young, the way I divided the world up, I was much more, whatever, open-minded. I could see things, right? So that's running to the past and delighting in such perceptions that I had then. Oh, delighting that I had such formation, that I had such samskaras then, right? Again, oh, back in the past, I was so, again, not so jaded, or I wasn't so conditioned to see things such a way, right? Or however. And then finally, oh, I had such consciousness back then, right? Again, oh, back in my youth, I, you know, I used to think such wild things, right? Or whatever it was, right? I wanted to be a musician when I was a kid, da-da-da, right? That's running to the past. And how bhikkhus does one not revive the past? How does one not run to the past? One does not nurture delight their thinking, I had such material form in the past. One does not nurture delight their thinking, I had such feeling in the past, I had such perceptions in the past, 
I had such formations in the past, or I had such consciousness in the past. That is how one does not revive the past. <laughs> Any questions? Right? Don't go there. Don't go there. Yeah, I mean, be here now, or so the book says, right? And how because does one build up hope upon the future? One nurtures delight their thinking, may I have such material form in the future, right? Oh, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to the gym every day and by, the, by New Year's, a six-pack. That's delighting in the future, right? Oh, I'll have such physical form in the future. Uh, one nurtures delight their thinking, may I, may, I have such, uh, uh, may I have such feelings in the future? Again, oh, like I'm not feeling it right now, but I look forward to a time when I will have such wonderful feelings, right? Or I look, you know, I have such, um, da, da, da. may I have such, uh, one, sorry. may I have such perceptions in the future, may I have such formations or some scars in the future, and may I have such consciousness in the future. I can't wait to be enlightened, right? If I really keep at this, I'm really gonna be someday, someday I'll be there, right? That is how one builds up hope upon the future. And how bhikkhus does one not build up hope on the future? One does not nurture delight their thinking, may I have such material form in the future? One does not nurture delight their thinking, may I have such feelings in the future? May I have such perceptions in the future? May I have such formations in the future? And may I have such consciousness in the future? That is how one does not build up hope on the future. Right? And how bhikkhus is one vanquished in regard to presently arisen states? So now we're back. So presently arisen states means these dependently originated phenomena that I know are not, they have no past. They have no future. They're being dependently originated right now via my mind, via this modem of my mind processing information, right? And so how is one vanquished? How is one destroyed? Right in regard to these presently arisen states, here bhikkhus, an untaught, ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, regards material form as self or self as possessed of material form or material form as in self, or self as in material form. He regards feelings as the self, perceptions as the self, formations as the self, or consciousness as self, or self as possessed of consciousness, or consciousness as in the self, or self as in consciousness. That is how one is vanquished in regard to presently arisen states. So here is the thing. Everybody at the time of the Buddha, and still to this day, believes in and clings to the self. The notion of their singularity, the notion of their reality in terms of a past from, the, from birth up to now, and my life up to death. My lifespan, me, clean, right? That, again, is what everybody at the time of the Buddha thought, and still to this day most people think that. Past, present, future, self. The Buddha came along and 
smashed that idea and said, aha, you're actually these five things. Oh, so that's me. This is me then. You just said, Buddha, that this is, this is me, the physical form. And he's saying, no, 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 don't do that. This is how you get vanquished. This is how you get rocked by this phenomenal world. By thinking that the self is in physical form or made of physical form. or It's, it's like the self is, is like made of a phys physical form or the self is kind of in physical form. This is, this is the ph philosophy here. These four different, like you can imagine that the self is in it or that it's made of it or that it's concomitant like at the same time as it. And he said, don't do that. Don't think of this as the self. Don't think of your feelings, your current feeling state, pleasurable or unpleasurable. Don't think of that as the self. Don't think of your perceptions, the way you divide the world. Don't think of that as the self, your samskaras, even your consciousness, the ever-turning wheel of ideas. Don't think that's the self or that the self is in consciousness or the selves are made of consciousness. Just don't do any of that, right? And how bhikkhus? Wait, did we do all those? Yeah. And how bhikkhus is, is one invincible in regard to presently arisen states? Here bhikkhus, a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in their dharma, who has regard for true men and is skilled and disciplined in their dharma. He does not regard material form as the self or the self as possessed of material form or material form as in self or self as in material form. He doesn't regard the feelings as self or in the feelings or of the feelings, right? The perceptions of self or formations of self or consciousness of self or self as possessed of consciousness or consciousness as in self or self as in consciousness. This is how one is invincible in regard to presently arisen states. Let not a person revive the past or in the future build his hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, Mara may, may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep Mara and his hordes away. The one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So it was with reference to this that it was said, Bhikkhus, I shall teach you the summary and exposition of one who has had a single excellent night. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. All right. So, questions, ideas. So, he's saying, don't, don't think that's the self, don't think that's the self. And what it comes down to, all this talk is, of course, with Buddhism, is don't, <laughs> don't attach to the notion of a self. And by that, in this world, a self
was, when I said, we, we think there's one clock here because we have that word, right? And I just showed you how, oh, there's not one thing here that's a trick, right? In Buddhism and sort of Buddhist thinking, to think of this as a thing, as one thing, is to think that it has a self, right? Just, you just kind of have to get hip to this idea that in, in Buddhism, the notion of a self is, is what's called an, an atma or an atman, depending. This is Sanskrit. In Pali, they just call it atma. Individuality means the same as individual entity. Yeah, a oneness, a singular, the notion of a singularity. And and so also do this do this one too. So the notion that this is a singularity, and I've just shown you this is by far not a singularity, right? What is important about this way of seeing it is that then you're like, right, it's not a singularity because of like this is a part of it. But now, screw with that. Let's just talk about this now. We would then want to say, oh, but this is a singularity. No, right? There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of different parts to this. And eventually we could get into the molecular structure in terms of its multiplicity of all kinds of things, right? So this breaking down into what was seemingly a singularity and then realizing, oh, it's not a singularity at all. It's happening to, in terms of the self, where this is seemingly a singularity, but behold, it's not. This is seemingly a singularity, but behold, it's not. This is a seemingly a singularity, but behold, it's not. And it just keeps going like that. So that's a big part of this... Uh, the problem with the notion of singularities or, or individual individualnesses, selves. And that's why the Buddha is saying, just don't, don't keep doing that. Because that's the, the tendency is to say like, oh, okay, there's no me, but then that's all me. No, 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 no. Stop doing the clinging. <laughs> right. Questions, ideas? Oh yeah, no, no. With 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 Newton and this Newtonian nightmare, it is this. It's. I agree with you absolutely in terms of the psychology that Descartes gets into these monads of existence. He has these and like has it, it struggles with some of the same problems, but very totally different conclusions. Exactly. Like, yeah. But more to the point, though, why I focus on Newton is because it is our worldview, if you will, our way of seeing this world which is, science, quote, scientific in that way, where there is this notion of a, you know, the billiard table of the world with all the atoms bouncing around. Like, that's the Newtonian worldview that we have inherited, 
which is the world of cause and effect, the world of objects and things, and the world of uh, uh, whatever, the laws of the thermodynamics, like these general notions about the way the world is working, is all, that whole way is all predicated on the notion of singularities, the notion of instances, the notion of things. If you see what I'm saying, like that, our worldview that we have inherited, that scientific worldview of Newton is a world of things bouncing into each other. And from this point of view, that's not what's going on. At every moment, the world is being created. And that includes the notion of past and future. There is no past and future. That is a, 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 a notion of, that you have now. But you can never show me this past of yours. You can show me a picture now, and we can look at it now, and, and you can talk to me all about how, when it happened and all of that. But the reality is, is we can never go there. We can never be there. It never is. It is a, just a, a perspective. And, what, and what's even wilder is that there is a way in which, this might be too much, but it's all right. There is a way in which the, the role of language in this is really serious, meaning that our grammar, the way we conjugate verbs, is potentially creating our very notions of past and future. Meaning the reason why the past is knowable and the future is not could potentially just because of our, be because of our grammar. And if we change the way that we speak and conjugate verbs, we may actually be able to see the future the same way we see the past. What was that? Uh, Arrival is that. I don't usually like to promote movies, but that movie, the sci-fi movie Arrival, is actually about this idea. And if you've seen it, a scientist eventually basically gets linguistically reprogrammed and starts seeing the future because of what I just described. So it's kind of an interesting presentation of what Buddhism is, is saying, like, yeah, that's what's going on. Our language structure is what is creating our reality. Notions of I, the fact that we do our subject predicate, that I did that, sets up the paradigm of first and second, cause and effect. It's in the way that we structure our language. But. Uh, language, totally. I was about to ask you to talk about the title and why they chose this, uh, a single excellent night as the title, which I was you were saying about single and night. Like, oh, you know, it's interesting that you should say that because I too had this sort of like double take on the notion of relentlessly day by night. And sort of the same like, aren't we? So I was with, I'm with you on that. I would, I guess I would suggest, I mean, I personally really, I delight in this idea of a single excellent night because of this, this, this single excellent night in the sense that this is all there actually is. As I just said, the past, that's a Buddhist said, the past is gone, the future hasn't gotten here yet. So this is actually all we ever get. 
all we ever get is is our is the now. And and so there's a there's a, a more or I should say there's a less philosophical way to see this. Like I took you on the the road to emptiness, but there's a simple a much simpler suggestion here, which is that if you're off in the past or the future, you're missing it. You're missing what you're actually being given. We are given this, and we kind of screw it up by having our mind in the past and our mind in the future. Now, I, I didn't want to, I don't, I broke, I broke the clock, so I don't know what time it is, um, but I do want to just point out a few things. Has, has anybody, did anybody detect the similarities between this and our sort of wisdom? So I know the sort of wisdom was like heavy, but there's a couple of ideas from it that if you took, if you were in there, a big part of the sort of wisdom sutra is about when all of these bodhisattvas are doing this meditation and they're starting to reflect on all of these past transgressions that they did in their past lives, or even their present life, but in earlier <clears throat> age of their life. And there's a way in which the Buddha, actually Manjushri, kind of absolves everybody of their sins of the past in this same way, in this same notion of past and future being, that's Mara's realm. Mara's realm is all about you delighting in the good old days and looking forward to the good days. Mara loves it when you don't pay attention now. If that makes sense. Mara loves it when you're totally in the future and in the past because that's Mara's realm. Mara's realm is the fictional, the not true, the not real, the non-dharma. Right? I'm so glad you asked that. It's so crazy. And this is the point of the sutra, of the sort of wisdom sutra. Okay. So what, you know, what is karma? Karma, uh, you know, the, always do the language. So this word karma just means action, if you didn't know. So all it means, this is karma. That's karma. Uh, there's karma via the body. I can do stuff. There's karma via the mouth. I can say stuff. And there's karma via the mind. I can think stuff. Karma is just action. Action of the mind, action of the mouth, and action of the body. And the basic idea of Buddhism is that the things that we think about are the things that we talk about, which are the things that we do. Meaning that I usually go like, hey, you know, I was in London recently. I really liked it. I'm thinking about moving there. Or actually, I would just be there thinking, wow, this, you know, this place is great. Maybe I should move here. And then I come back and I say, hey, I was in London recently. I'm thinking about moving there. So now I thought about it. And then I started talking about it. And now pretty soon, the body's in motion, bags packed, and I'm going there. No, don't do it. I'm not doing it. Don't worry. But that's, that's, all, that's all karma. Karma is the action of thinking about it, the action of talking about it, and the action of doing it. And then I'm in London. It's my karma that I be in London, right? I'm on a double-decker bus. That's my karma. There's nothing magical in, in Buddhism, or actually in any 
in any real Indian tradition, philosophical, karma is not magic. It's not good luck or bad luck. It's not my karma ate my dogma and these stupid jokes. It really is just a word for action. But India, Indian philosophy and Buddhism has a really uh, interesting view on action and how it works and how it manifests the world around you. So here's the thing about it. Uh, the whole action is that there is, now you're, you're going to say Newtonian nightmare. In karma, there is karma, action, reaction. There is cause and effect, right? And in the same way that if I were to go up and slap you, you might slap me back. That would be action, reaction, and it would be part of the karma for that to happen, right? But I could also just start calling Noam bad names until he slaps me. And there's a way in which Buddhism and kind of Indian traditions talk about how body karma is like really gross in the sense that it's really out there and that it's usually like action, reaction, action, reaction. Vocal karma is a little more subtle. It takes a little longer, but it eventually gets around in that way. And then mental karma is even, the, it's the most subtle. Meaning that I could just actually be sitting here just, meh, you know, and eventually no one would pick up on it. He'd be like, Michael's vibing me out, right? So anyways, here's the deal about it. This is a giant karma ball, right? There's just karma bouncing all over the place. Actions, reactions, all kinds of stuff. But part of the discriminatory process is I cling to myself and I tend to just care about what affects this. I always call it a karmic axis. So this karmic axis and stuff from this axis goes out and stuff comes back to this axis. And I tend to, because of my selfish clinging, I kind of only care about what's affecting this karmic axis. Your karmic axis, I don't care quite so much about it. I actually care a lot about it. But I'm saying like your karmic axis is your karmic axis. What, what goes to you goes to you. And you, you, right? From a Buddhist point of view, that's totally ignorant. That all of our karma is totally interbound, and if you get into dependent origination, it's actually ontologically the same, not just cause and effect. But anyways, what I'm getting to here is, is that in when you're clinging to the self, karma in this sense is very real. It's very real. And you could sort of go on all day about emptiness and dependent origination and all of that. But if you do not really understand this, I mean really, like, re-realize it, re make it real, realize it. If you're still over here, self and other clinging to the axis, karma's very real. And it'll come back to bite you. But if you really divest yourself of the clinging to this axis and you start kind of embracing the larger axis, like you could kind of imagine it as 
I'm not just concerned about this little axis, I'm concerned about the sangha, like this karmic axis, the whole thing. Or not even this sangha, I'm concerned about San Francisco, this karmic axis, or this whole country, or this whole planet, or whatever. Or, you know, the idea is, is that if I truly, truly didn't cling to just this self axis, then the karma that comes back to this axis, I would have a different attitude towards. Does that make sense? Because now I'm, I'm much more concerned with all the karma going on. I'm, I'm now kind of like, oh yeah, it's dependently originated. It's all connected anyways. I was a fool before to think it was just this. And only concerning myself with what was coming back to here. Right? Am I, am, is this making sense? It's yes. sort of this tricky thing where it's like, you can talk about no self and emptiness, and it's true, it's real, right? But if you don't really believe it, like if you don't really know it, and you're still actually clinging to this axis, then karma, it will come back to you. It's very real. Because in many ways, karma is the clinging itself. Again, I go back to my example of it's the clinging that gives rise to the self, not the other way around. Something like that. Right. Questions, ideas? Yes. Okay. Um, I've been mulling this over. It's either a good question for a scholar or the worst question for a scholar. So you just said it's true, it's real, this thing about no self and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So. It seems to me that most, if not all, religious traditions all believe they have the truth. Ah. Christianity has the truth. Yes. I don't know. About I'm not going to go through them all, but you know what I mean. Christians completely believe that you need Christ to you know, to come into your life for your redemption or whatever. Yes. So is you just said, is this the truth? Is this the truth? Or is this a truth? Okay, great question. Great question. Many, many ways to answer that. Um, so on the one hand, I want to take this step aside and say, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> when I said before, like, it's true, I was like, you know, what the Buddha says it's true. So I, I made a quite a okay. declarative okay. statement okay. of it's yeah. true. But I also want to say that I'm a Buddhist, and I believe in the truthfulness of that. But let me articulate what I think that okay. is, what I think that truthfulness is, and why I think it's a little different than your Christianities and Judaisms and Islams and all of that. So this notion of, of like not getting it, of, of sort of seeing the world wrong, is... Yes, that, I think that is a fundamental idea of all of these so-called religious traditions, right? That man is either sinful, has fallen, da-da-da, uh, all kinds of different ideas, and that we are not seeing things as it, they really are. And so the uh, young men in their white 
shirts and ties and short sleeve white shirts with their little name tags, right? Our Mormon friends will come to the door and they'll say, it, the world doesn't make sense to you and it's all confusing because you didn't know about Joseph Smith and the magic tablets and all. You didn't know and we are here to tell you about the Book of Mormon and we'll share it with you so you'll know. Right, okay. Or the Christians come along and say, here's your new, you know, the Gideon's Bible, New Testament. You didn't know. Oh, you didn't, you didn't hear? You didn't hear the good news that Jesus died for your sins and all you have to do is have a relationship with Jesus? You didn't know. But now, you know, you can get on your way. All right. Right. Oh, you didn't know about praying five times a day and going to Mecca. You didn't know that doing those things would then allow you to see things as they are. So all these religions have this idea of like, this isn't as it is. I want to show you how it really is, right? The reason why I think Buddhism is very unique in that paradigm of showing you things as they really are Ah, there's so many reasons, but one of the main reasons why I think Buddhism is unique in this is that the idea is, is that there is no other view but this view. There is no underneath this. Let me give you a different example to come back to that. So... So this is from a, it's kind of a sutra, it's actually a commentary, but there's this beautiful story, I've said, I tell this story all the time, and it's about this story about this man who's lost in the woods, right? And it's dark, it's, it's a moonless night, cloudy sky, so you can't see the stars, can't see anything because there's no moon, and he's completely lost. He doesn't know north, south, east, or west, right? The parable says that the moment the man doesn't care where he's going, he's no longer lost. Just like that. He goes from being lost to found just by no longer caring where he's going, right? I would suggest to you that we're lost in the woods at night. And the Christians are saying, it's over here. Jesus is over here, and all you have to do is go over here, and you'll be found. Go find him. And then the, the Muslims over here going, oh, psst, Muhammad's over here, the Quran's over here, go this way, right? And then the Taoists are over here going, oh, Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, he's over here, go this way. So we're lost in the woods trying to figure out what the hell's going on in this world, and we got all these people telling us, oh, no, go over here. This is the way out. That's the way out. Buddhism is the only one saying it is totally within your power right here and right now to be saved by not caring where you're going. To me, that's like, it's so empowering, it's so beautiful, it's so, so there's something about that to me that's like, wow. Wow. That again, the notion is, is like there's all this stuff 
this world's so confusing, and now you've got to read this and read this, and then get down on your knees, and then here's some water, and da-da-da-da-da, and go through all of these things in order to be saved, in order to find your way, right? And Buddhism's the only one saying, no, you're actually causing yourself to be lost by your clinging and your attachment. And all you have to do is stop doing that. Wow, wow. Was that an answer to a question? I don't even know. <laughs> where. Oh, thank you. Oh, good. So we're at the time, so I'm going to stop introducing new ideas. I'll, any other old ideas? Did you like the sutra? So one of the things, uh, maybe next week, I don't know whatever we do next week. One of the things that you should know is that in this giant book, we first have the single excellent night. But then what we then have is Ananda and a single excellent night. And this is a funny sutra in which Ananda is telling this. So what I just told you, this is a sutra where Ananda is telling the other monks about the poem that he heard the Buddha say. And then the next one is Mahakachana and a single excellent night. And it's his telling it because he heard it from Ananda, and so he, now he's telling. And then the next one is, uh, and it's a little longer, and the next one is this uh, Loma, Loma Sakaginya and a single excellent night. And it's his telling of the story. So you start to get this wild expansion of people sharing this, and the same poem appears, it's the same poem. So... I think next time we'll go through some of these and kind of look at the way in which this sutra has been explained. But I'm mainly going to just do the usual crazy <laughs> emptiness <laughs> stuff. Um, and is next Sunday the 23rd? Next Sunday is the 23rd. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to do some more ideas. And then I think next uh, year we're going to start a new sutra. And I think I know which one we'll do, but I'm kind of still hashing it out. So, yeah. And a single excellent night. Yeah. Um, Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. Have an excellent night.